Hey everyone. Fans of the World War franchise have been asking for years, when are they going to switch to letters? Today's book is World War Z. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, and I'm pretty squeamish by nature, so I've never been a big fan of the zombie genre. Um, the Zombra. <laughs> so, when I was 30, I finally watched Night of the Living Dead for the first time, and I have to say, it was really slow and boring. But this... <laughs> This book came highly rated, and I actually really, really enjoyed it. And I'm David Vance. I love this book because I'm a big fan of comedically biting people. World War Z is a successful book, movie, and video game, all based around one original idea, zombies. And this is The Book Pile. So, quick reminder to please rate and review The Book Pile. We super appreciate everyone who's already rated uh, it just takes a few seconds, and it could literally save a life. <laughs> I've realized that when people say that in, like, infomercial pitches, we never fact-check them on that. <laughs> Do you remember when we were kids, when I was a kid and you weren't born yet, how they would, <laughs> in grocery stores, still had arcade games, like, when you would walk out, you know, the entrance oh, yeah. exit, they would have arcade games. I remember there was one grocery store and they had, instead of a video game, you put in a quarter and the screen would light up and say that you just saved an acre of the Amazon. Interesting. And did anyone actually <laughs> do any research there to see? And if it only cost a quarter... It seems like we could save the whole thing pretty quickly. <laughs> it was actually referencing an acre of the Amazon fulfillment centers. <laughs> I want to know what was the business model of those grocery store arcades? Like, what was the pitch where they were like, okay, we're going to have a place where parents can leave their kids where they are the most snatchable that they will ever be in the store. And we're going to put them right by the motion triggered doors so the kids are constantly opening the door and letting in cold air. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea, too, that it's also for the adult who has just purchased all these perishables <laughs> and, like, ice cream. And they're like, wait, they have Mrs. Pac-Man? <laughs> I'm going to read part of a, a nice review from Cool Guy Pod Raider, emoji of the hang loose sign. Uh, he says... I discovered this podcast on spring break. Oh, man, now I'm really taking that hang loose seriously. It says, I've seen Kellen live, and it's great to have more of his comedy available on a weekly basis. Dave's quick ability to instantly draw on quotes and principles from unrelated books is suspicious. <laughs> what does he suspect I am doing? <laughs> I don't know. It's like he suspects that you're actually a computer. I don't know. <laughs> Well, thank you, uh, hang loose symbol. <laughs> All right, without further ado, here are our five favorite lessons from World War Z. Lesson number one, some books can't be made into movies. Have you seen the movie, Dave, World War Z? No, but I, I, read, I read the whole plot synopsis and I was floored by how different it is. Yeah, so even Max Brooks came out in, in like 2016 and said that the only similarity between the two is the name. It's it's pretty, it's kind of like, we, uh, we brought up the story of how the movie Up was created from its inception to completion, <laughs> where uh, literally the only two things that remained were the name and the tall bird. That's pretty much this 
this book to movie journey is uh, the remaining right. things is the 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 name and and the zombies, but only kind of because even the zombies are completely different. You could take the screenplay and show it to your buddy and be like, "Hey, man, am I copying World War Z?" And he'd be like, "Nah, you're good." <laughs> yeah, it's like they bought yeah. the rights and we're like, "Ah, oh, man, we love this title." <laughs> Yeah, the the only thing that's the same is that Jerusalem is in it. <laughs> <laughs> they could have named this movie The Bible. <laughs> it shares as much plot consistency. But I will say that that it is a fun movie. You just can't connect the two of them. Like they're they're enjoyed like exclusive of each other. One benefit of having a book made into a movie that's even a poor adaptation is that even a mediocre adaptation of a book has the power to spread the story into the cultural radar way more than a book does. Um, mm. I wouldn't have learned about World War Z as soon as I had were it not for the movie. We brought up how the Hamilton biography sold 3,000 copies in its first year publication. And then the play came out and it sold over a million. So there's definitely a power that, you know, visual yeah. medium, the visual medium has. And to prove this- And all of it really launched Alexander Hamilton's career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how many of those other guys- are looking down. Like, do you think that uh, Rutherford Hayes is like, when's my R&B <laughs> album coming out? So to prove this, this concept, here are some other movies that you may not know are also books. Bring it up if you have, but... <clears throat> okay. Freaky Friday. Really? The Parent Trap. Do you see a trend? <laughs> They're all Lindsay Lohan? <laughs> Also, Mean Girls. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Mean Girls was Queen Bees and Wannabes, right? Right. So it wasn't strictly a, a, an adaptation, but it was that was the, a heavy influence yeah, for, uh, for mm. uh, Tina Fey. So here's another one. Uh, the, the novel Nothing Lasts Forever is Die Hard. Oh, man, that first title sounds so sappy and like I would never read it. It sounds like a bro's bro was like, uh-uh, I'm, I'm going to adapt this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nothing lasts forever. It sounds like um, <laughs> the name of a documentary for Bruce Willis's hairline. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing lasts forever sounds like a real sad, cloudy British novel about teenagers growing up in a secluded boarding house. <laughs> it's funny because I want to say it came out in the 60s. This this novel came out in the 60s and Ian Fleming's James Bond obviously took off his book series. It very much sounds like a James Bond movie mm. title. So Jaws was another novel. And apparently wow. the, the author was so upset by the reputation that the movie gave sharks that he became an ardent ocean conservationist <laughs> i love that that was his frankenstein's monster that really got away yeah. from it. I love that he wrote a book about man-eating sharks and then the movie comes out about man-eating sharks and then he's like wait no i mean they don't eat that many people <laughs> i bet he was so pissed when he read the old man in the sea <laughs> This last one is likely more well-known, but I just love the disparity between the movie title and the book. So the film Blade Runner came from a Philip K. Dick novel called Do Androids Dream of Electric oh, yeah. Sheep? 
I just, I want to, I want to be in there for that brainstorming session. It's like they brought in the diehard marketer. Yeah, I was just thinking, and they're that. like, "How do we get sheep out of this title?" <laughs> it's like every time there's an author who's pensive and likes dwelling on things that are thematically important, they're like, "Okay, bring in the diehard guy, <laughs> Blade Runner." <laughs> it's like you need to take every thoughtful title and make it two words and violent. <laughs> It's like the same guy came in because George Lucas was like, all right, here's the my, my space opera. It's called Free Your Mind and Don't Use the Computer. <laughs> Star Wars. And the guy, yeah, he's just chomping on a c- cigar. Star Wars. And George Lucas is like, but that doesn't make sense. I mean, there's no, there's not even a star in it. <laughs> okay, lesson two, create suspense. So this section is actually a question, not so much a lesson. I want to figure out how he did such a good job of building suspense, even while he was writing in first person past tense. So this is a pretty common writing challenge where, you know, in first person past tense, if we already know the character survived, how does the story stay suspenseful in these like high stakes environments? So some people have tried to solve this in different ways. One bad example is in the original beginning of Sunset Boulevard, It's a bunch of bodies in a morgue, and they're telling stories of how they died, and then the protagonist starts his story to launch the movie. And audiences laughed at it so hard that they had to go back and film a whole different beginning. (laughs) Anyway, so so in this book, everyone's telling the narrator stories of the zombie apocalypse and how they survived. So by definition, every single character survives. And yet for me, it was such a suspenseful book, and I was always so attentive to every part of it. So my question is, How does he maintain suspense like that in this first-person past tense format? I only have theories, but I'm curious, Kellen, if you have any ideas here. Well, I only have theories, too, because I I, I tried to deconstruct this. He does it so, so effectively. And to to your point, one of the reasons why I don't watch movie trailers to movies that I know I'm going to see... Because I will remember, like, oh yeah, this person isn't going to die here because they haven't they haven't jumped their car. You know, oh. that the, the car jump scene hasn't happened yet uh, that I saw in the trailer. <laughs> See, I I always know this character is not going to die here because they are a multi million dollar property. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's why I hated the end of Avengers: Infinity War. Because I was like, yeah. yeah, there's no way that all, all of these characters are just gone now. Right. Like Spider-Man. That would be like killing Harry Potter in book three. You'd be like, well, I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's coming back. That moment, I, I love it as a scene. It is a wonderfully chilling scene. But I remember being in the theater, and when the first two characters disintegrated, I was like, holy crap. And then the more characters disintegrated, the more I was like, okay, they're coming back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I didn't enjoy that. And it was really considerate of Thanos to leave the entire original six fully intact. (laughs) So I don't know how how, how Max Brooks, how he accomplishes it, because so many of these stories were legitimately uh, suspenseful when logically Mm -hmm. they shouldn't be, as to your point. I I do think there's some some parts where it's more obvious. There's a story about uh, a family that's from one person's perspective and how their their house was invaded by zombies and so that part is you don't know like i hope all of them make it but even with yeah. this the story of the blind japanese man that was suspenseful for me like how is he going to get through this even though i know he's the one telling it 
Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't... I, I guess I have a couple of theories. I think the first one is making sure that there's always something at stake. So to your point, yeah, are they going to lose their loved ones? Which other people are going to die? Are they going to suffer immensely? But then to me, I think what may even be a bigger part of it is he just makes the description so vivid and immersive with like sensory details that I think we are so in it that we forget that it's past tense and that the person survived by definition. You know what I mean? There's there's this part where this one woman, her plane crashes in the middle of like zombie territory in like this Louisiana marshland mm. and she crash lands, she parachutes into zombie county, she sleeps in a tree and she wakes up and a hundred zombies are crowding around her <laughs> and she has to jump out of the tree. She breaks her ankle. She's running on this broken ankle from a horde of zombies trying to get to the pickup point on time. So even though intellectually, you know, she survives, you're so surrounded with these tense sensory details. I think it's so hard. Like, how could you not have suspense, even though you basically know? Well, that's interesting. And going back to our point, a point earlier about how uh, a well-written story allows the reader to, allows us to insert ourselves into the main character. And so in in that mm-hmm. sense, when it's written well enough that, we, yeah, we feel like these things are happening to us in real time. Like, oh, I hope, yeah. we, how are we going to get out of this one? That visual of having all those zombies under the tree, there are so many incredibly like inventive zombie ideas in this book iceland becomes an island of zombies because of all the refugees who go there but then the icelandic government isn't doesn't have the infrastructure to be able to detect who has been infected and who hasn't and so you just get this visual of an entire island covered with them even from outer space we get this planetary visual of Mm -hmm. the destruction that has happened down to the details that i never would have thought of that these astronauts looking down on a zombie infested world they the only lights that remain are what he says, the glow of a billion campfires. Hmm, crazy. All right, lesson number three. Even a crazy story can be made credible. There are a lot of different methods for doing this, but along with uh, the incredible research that Max Brooks put into World War Z, it's also the fact that he like created new slang for this new zombie-ridden world culture. And it makes it a lot more fun than just like if it were to be a bunch of ham-fisted conversations about zombies and zombie guns, you know? <laughs> so so <laughs> some of the post-apocalyptic slang that he came up with, there's RCs, which is uh, Robinson Crusoe's. These are people who are super resourceful uh, during the apocalypse. They have lobos, short for the lobotomizers, which are these sort of efficient axes that they use used for smashing zombie skulls. And then I like that across the world, they have different slang for zombies. They call them Gs. They call them Z-heads, which I didn't get until after the book. Or I was like, oh yeah, I think the letter Z in Canada is Z. So that makes more sense. Oh, really? I think that's where it comes from. Which by the way, I mean, I get that W is probably the weirdest letter. But everything else is just sort Why of... Why is W the weirdest letter? Because it's like the letter is like a word. Oh. Like there's the word <laughs> And it's double. not even factual. It's a double V. <laughs> yeah. We'll get into that on our other podcast. Dave w- and Kellen roast the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> w is misleading advertising. Like W would not get FDA approval. <laughs> 
Um, and then Zach, they also call zombies Zach in the book, which I think is funny too. I feel bad for like all the real Zachs. Like <laughs> how many actual guys named Zach got shot <laughs> because someone was like, hey, Zach. And another guy just blew him away. Blew his brains Or <laughs> hit him with, with a lobotomizer. I wonder if every time you do it, if you mutter to yourself, Zach attack. <laughs> I feel like if your name was Zach in this World War Z universe, you probably feel the same way that actual Karens do right now. <laughs> yeah, this <laughs> this isn't a good time to stage my new Broadway musical, Zachary Taylor. <laughs> so there's this credibility, I, I think, that really pulls us into the story by the, the, the way that people are talking about zombies. Uh, this conversational tone in in all of these different cultures and their their different vernacular that has sprouted from this catastrophe. But he also deftly inserts hard facts in within fantastical elements that that happen. One of my favorite examples of this is that at one point Max or not Max Brooks, I, I forget the protagonist or the the interviewer's name, but it's voiced by the actual uh, Max Brooks, and mm-hmm. he, he's interviewing a scientist and they're outside in the snow and there's this zombie it's frozen up to its torso in uh, in the snow but its arms and head are still working and like clawing at them and they're just standing there looking at it and while they're doing that the scientist says all human cells contain water right and when water freezes it bursts the cell walls that's why you can't just freeze people on suspended animation. So then why does it work for the living dead? And so one of the reasons why I really enjoy this is because not only are, are, is he bringing in like hard science, it's, it's also interesting, but she also asks a question that we would ask, which is something that a lot of horror movies miss, I think. Yeah. I brought up this example of... The reason why horror movies, a lot of them are so cheesy and unrelatable is because when the lights go off in a basement, you wouldn't run down there to see what happened. And the neat thing about this, too, is that she doesn't answer the question. And the question doesn't need to be answered. It just needs to be asked. I love Christopher Nolan, but he does this in a really lazy way in Tenet when uh, Denzel Washington's son, he asks a scientist tells a scientist that he doesn't understand how time could run backwards the way that it is. And she just says, don't try to understand it, just feel it. And (laughs) watching the movie, we're like, yeah, okay, wait, hold on. (laughs) So I think that's that. You don't even have to answer all the questions in the story. You just have to ask the question that an actual human would and we'll we'll keep going along with it. Yeah, my uh my friend Adam has written a couple of books and one thing he pointed out to me is that anytime you have a character express a doubt that the audience is probably expressing as well, it helps assuage that doubt even if you don't answer actually answer that question. Well, I said it too. <laughs> I do, though. I like it how he said it better than me, though. Thanks for that. So, Dave, what are... (laughs) I I just think it allows... Well, I think it allows characters to essentially act as a proxy for the audience. I think once the audience feels represented in some ways, they stop worrying as much, or they're able to identify a little bit more. Dan Harmon talks about that, about what you just said, in a better way. He describes it as... He says that when you start a story, we focus on a character and we will 
insert ourselves into that character until a better one comes along. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was my experience with Luke and then Han. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that well, that's a, that's a, an interesting comparison because Dan Harmon talks about like if you don't know how to create this character for people to relate to, just make them trip. <laughs> he says sympathy always works in a pinch, and ex- that's exactly what happens with Luke. Is that we meet Luke and he is a little whiny, but then his uncle is basically like. No, I'm not going to let you fulfill your dreams. You need to stay here and do chores. <laughs> so we're like, ah, poor guy. But then, yeah, we meet Han and you're like, never mind. I like this cool guy. The man in severe debt to a gangster. <laughs> okay, lesson four. Don't treat preppers like they're crazy. So there's this quote from the book that I love. He says, most people don't believe something can happen until it already has. That's not stupidity or weakness. That's just human nature. Nassim Taleb writes about this idea in The Black Swan, where he says, when something hasn't happened before, we often think that it can't happen. And you see that in the beginning of this book, where for a long time, the world doesn't take the zombie pandemic very seriously, and no one thinks it's really going to get out of hand, and then it super does get out of hand. So uh, in, in real life, you know, we often treat preppers like they're crazy. But listen to these, like, real facts. So, smallpox. Smallpox has killed over 300 million people, and most of us aren't vaccinated these days because it's eradicated, and we were supposed to destroy most of the samples. But in 2014, in a lab in Maryland, someone found smallpox sitting in a fridge in a cardboard box, (laughs) and it was just chilling there since the 50s. And, uh, like, I I like to think that no one cleaned the fridge because they thought it was their roommates. (laughs) Another one in... to be like, there's no reason to keep something like that other than for, like, sentimental reasons it's like it's like the person who tries to quit smoking and so instead of throwing away all their cigarettes they'll like hide one last box on a high shelf like just in case or they'll say something like it's just to prove to myself that i'll never reach for it (laughs) yeah we we very much had like a breakup with smallpox but we haven't deleted its number (laughs) another one in 1983 the soviets got this false alarm saying the u.s had launched nukes and this russian officer stanislav petrov disobeyed orders And that's probably what stopped the Soviets from firing back. So he quite possibly saved the world. And apparently the Soviets promised him a reward, but then instead he got reprimanded for not doing his paperwork. So he literally got Mike Wazowski'd for saving Earth. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, I bring those up because we really just don't know if some cataclysm is going to happen. You know, Earth's been hit by asteroids before, the the Yellowstone supervolcano may explode— And so I, like, personally, I think we shouldn't treat preppers like they're crazy. Like, I think they have a very reasonable worldview. I'm hoping that with everything that happened with COVID, that that people will have better instincts the next time. Not that this wasn't serious, but if something truly, like, cataclysmic happened, that we would know that there's still going to be enough toilet paper and peanut butter, so maybe not go for that (laughs) first. (laughs) I think right now that they should do an investigation, and anyone who right now still has, like, eight months worth of Clorox wipes in their garage <laughs> should go to jail for a week just for what they put the rest of us through. I seriously think, you know, we should all have food storage. We should all have water yeah. storage. I just bought a book called The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Civilization in the Aftermath of a Cataclysm, because I am a fun person. <laughs> 
I had this short story, this idea for a short story years ago about someone building a bomb shelter and then eventually causing the devastation so that they could finally mm. use their bomb shelter. Because I do have this <laughs> feeling, I don't have any statistics to prove it, but I have this feeling that there's got to be a large portion of people who are preppers who secretly hope that something will happen so that they can use all this cool stuff. <laughs> that reminds me of this quote by Robert Mallet. How many pessimists end up desiring the thing they fear in order to prove that they are right? <laughs> I like to think that in the height of the Cold War, when a lot of like middle American families had bomb shelters, that at first they were really into it, but then like a year would go by and they'd be like, ah, we never use the bomb shelter anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. $4,000 that you can't return. <laughs> and it's like this object of great contention in the couple. <laughs> yeah. It's a huge wedge in their marriage. Okay, lesson five, write with deep knowledge. So this is a short one. You can just tell as you're reading the book that he knows a lot about a lot. Like, you know, he has tons of knowledge about sociology, politics, history, psych, military. And I just love that he took all that knowledge and he used it to write a zombie book. <laughs> there's, a, there's this great joke about the Fields Medal, which is a mathematics prize. If someone wins a Fields Medal, you know two things. One, they had the brains and talent to change the world. And two, they didn't. <laughs> But joking aside, you know, anytime someone writes something with deep knowledge, I just feel like the story can feel so real. So some other books that I really love, where you can just tell that the author knows a lot about a lot, The Three-Body Problem, The Power, Stories of Your Life and Others, they're all just these excellent sci-fi books that build on deep technical knowledge. And so I feel like that knowledge makes the writing so much more immersive and believable as a result. I agree. I mean, they say, write what you know. Meaning that, like, if you have a background in law, then write about l lawyers, hence mm -hmm. John Grisham. But Michael Crichton received an MD from Harvard Medical School, which he never used. Like, he, he just wanted to be an author. And he did write The Andromeda Strain, and he created ER. But he also wrote stories about quantum mechanics, time travel, genetic right. engineering, Japanese business politics, aviation scandals, and even disclosure, which is about sexual harassment. So I say, instead of just write what you know, let's also add... And if you don't know something, learn it. Right. Yeah. Go know it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, last episode was our Pixar episode and Pixar is so focused on immersive research. You know, for Ratatouille, they went to all these Parisian restaurants. They went to the Parisian sewers, like we said. For Up, they visited Venezuela. So they're very focused on making sure that they know something before they write about it. I think one example that you see of this in World War Z is that he's able to write credibly from all these different national perspectives. Like, here's South Africa's response to the pandemic. Here's China's and Israel's and the United States mm. and, and Canada's. Uh, and he's just clearly done this very deep political and sociological research so that when he writes from those national perspectives, you believe and you can actually see, oh, I, I, I could see how Israel would respond this way, you know? Yeah. All right, random facts. So I, I think this book is great. And so it cracks me up that he also wrote the story for The Great Wall with Matt Damon, which got terrible reviews. But then I looked up an action clip from The Great Wall and I was like, oh, I'd watch that. <laughs> Max Brooks has written five zombie books, a Bigfoot book, and the monster story of The Great Wall. And his dad is Mel Brooks, who's a comedy legend. So I like to think that Mel is still waiting around like, 
when's he going to outgrow his monster face? <laughs> I think Mel's like on parent forums, like, is anyone else's kid still really into zombies? <laughs> yeah. I do that. Like, can you imagine how, how it must have been for Mel Brooks initially? Like, he's this massively successful writer, producer, director, and he's also married to an Oscar-winning woman. Like, this couple, wow. and then they ask their, like, 23-year-old. And Bancroft, isn't that his wife? Yeah. So then they ask their, like... 23-year-old son what he's doing. He's like, I'm writing a book about zombies. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then it becomes like the most popular zombie book of all time. Um, I looked up a bunch of other zombie books, and the, here are some of my favorite titles. There's one called The Forest of Hands and Teeth. Ugh. And that, yeah, it's just a, a, a story in itself. Um, Happy Hour of the Damned. I thought that was fun. <laughs> And then that's fun because it makes it sound like like they get a kick back after work and just enjoy themselves. <laughs> like oh, people people are half off between two and five. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, this last one is my favorite. Uh, there's a book called Diary of a Minecraft Zombie, and what? I think that that's just that's just mixing too many things from pop pop culture. That's like the the author of that definitely dips his pizza in ranch. <laughs> what was that title again? Diary of a Minecraft Zombie. <laughs> I definitely heard Diarrhea the Minecraft Zombie. <laughs> oh, that's... Um, another one. So according to the Modern War Institute, Max Brooks has gotten invited to speak at military engagements because his military writing and thinking is so innovative. And his other book, The Zombie Survival Guide, was read and discussed by the chairman of Joint Chiefs, which is the highest ranking officer in the U.S. Armed Forces. <laughs> that's funny. He's like, <laughs> he shares stuff from that book with the, with the soldiers. And then he's like, all right, now we're going to watch Independence Day. <laughs> I love the idea of these high military brass getting all their ideas from movies. Although I have read, I read in the book Gamora that gangster movies influence a lot of like actual gangster culture where like after Pulp Fiction came out, you saw a lot of gangsters start to hold their guns sideways, for instance. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then they live lives in a nonlinear fashion. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's crazy too because holding your gun sideways is an incredibly inaccurate way to fire. It just looks way cooler, and I bet the uh, the glowing briefcase market really took off after that too. <laughs> <laughs> the word padrino, a bad mistranslation for Godfather, started being used by the mob only after the Godfather came out. Oh, wow, and uh, that's also when the. The horse guillotine was invented. <laughs> All right, here's my last fact. This is a fact from the book itself that I, I like that in places full of urban destruction where there was lots of debris, they had to climb over and under, um, they would hunt for zombies using wiener dogs. <laughs> 
<laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, because they were like really – and like Max Brooks, he goes into it. It's not arbitrary. He talks about – he then gives this – it just shows the amount of research that he did because he gives this little history of how dachshunds were specifically bred to hunt for badgers, like running into badger holes. Like how can wow. we make a skinny like hole-shaped dog? <laughs> <laughs> But I think that's what they sh- th- they needed to use for COVID instead of forehead thermometers. How great would that be? Just have like a wiener dog barking at customers in front of a Dave and Buster's. <laughs> the Bowser's just like, sorry, guys, come back in two weeks. Last thought. I couldn't help but noticing that so much of the book is focused on these very dense urban centers like New York City, slums in China, etc. Because I live in rural Utah, and I feel like if the zombie apocalypse happened here, it'd be way more manageable. It's just like, okay, well, lock your doors and I guess look both ways before you go to your car. (laughs) Kids just walk a little bit faster on the way to school. <laughs> right. Well, it's Utah. Kids walk a little bit faster on the way to homeschooling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. To recap, our favorite lessons from World War Z. One, some books can't be made into movies. Number two, create suspense. Number three, even a crazy story can be made credible. Number four, don't treat preppers like they're crazy because they'll shoot you. Number five, write with deep knowledge. And number six, this actually, uh, it's usually a joke, but I uh, highly recommend listening to this book. Mm, oh, yeah. I pretty much have a rule that I read all of the fiction that we cover on this podcast, but this audiobook has an incredible cast, including uh, Martin Scorsese and Mark Hamill. So it's it's fun to listen to like uh, an angry Luke Skywalker talk about butchering Zed heads. <laughs> They're animals, so I slaughtered them like animals. (laughs) 